Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. The virus is spreading. This is ernst. Nous sommes en guerre. You must stay at home. Europe is now coming to their support. We will be with our friends again. We will be with our families again. We will meet again. Welcome to our latest episode of EU Confidential, focusing on the coronavirus crisis. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels, and we hope you've managed to have something resembling a normal holiday weekend. Just before we get started, a quick heads up, the podcast crew will be doing a Twitter chat on Wednesday. More details at the end of the show. Now, later in this episode, you'll hear a report about the auto industry, how it's been affected by this crisis, and what people inside and outside the industry say about how it should navigate its way out. But first, let's speak with our senior health reporter, Sarah Wheaton. Sarah, along with our chief Brussels correspondent, David Herzenhorn, recently published an in-depth piece, what we call a TikTok, reviewing the key moments of this crisis so far and trying to answer the big questions about how Europe ended up here. The piece is entitled How Europe Failed the Coronavirus Test and you can read it at politico.eu. So Sarah, I'm going to ask you to give a very short summary of a very long story. Um, what are your main takeaways when you kind of step back from it all? Or, or what did you learn in the course of, of reporting this, which maybe you didn't realise in the course of your day-to-day reporting on this? The summary um, actually came up when we were discussing the image for the cover of the of the print edition, which sort of only exists as a PDF, but we have a, a very dramatic cover. And um, the summary of it is that European countries refuse to share their umbrella in a tsunami. And that comes from uh, Commission President Ursula von der Leyen had a, had a quote um, a week or two ago where she criticized uh, European countries for not helping each other. And she said, And when Europe really needed to prove that this is not only a fair weather union, too many initially refused to share their umbrella. But it was not long before some felt the consequences of their own uncoordinated action. But the reality is that that what the European Union was sort of offering, whether we're talking about uh, capital's responses or Brussels' response, regardless of whether they were working together or not, it was basically completely inadequate to respond to this um, huge pandemic. There was a combination of inadequate warnings from some scientists who are supposed to warn them in the European Union, such as the European Center for Disease Control and Prevention. Meanwhile, there had been many scientists who'd been arguing for about a decade now that the world is due for a major pandemic like this. So those warnings were ignored. And then even when people did start to register how big a problem this is, European countries didn't work together. So yeah, it's again, it's a, it's a big, complicated story with no kind of one 
bad guy or or a person that we can say really screwed up, but just kind of many different things that could go wrong did. Was there a key moment or moments when, you know, when Europe could have taken a, a different turn here? Well, the thing that I thought was really interesting in the course of reporting this is that sort of tipping point varied depending on who you talk to. So someone who works in the in the European Commission and kind of interacts with the uh, health specialists in the member countries a lot, that person said that they had always been concerned about what they were seeing in China and that... Um, when Italy needed to shut down these northern towns, that was a really clear moment for them. And and this person made the point that actually, if it had been maybe a more diffuse spread early on throughout Europe, that might have even further delayed the response. But this kind of very crystallized moment in Italy um, really helped uh, create a sense of urgency for these national officials. On the other hand, I interviewed Andrea Ammon, the the head of the European Center for Disease Control and Prevention, which is supposed to be monitoring these crises throughout the bloc. Um, She said that obviously Italy's shutdowns and problems were a major source of concern, but the thinking in the ECDC was, okay, they're taking the steps to control it. So this doesn't call for kind of widespread concern yet. Um, but then, um, uh, so Italy, Italy locked down its northern towns um, in late February, I think on, on the 23rd, over a weekend. But then it was that next weekend when everybody was coming home from their carnival festivals, from their ski holidays. And that's what she said really spread it around the block. And that's when she realized that Europe was not going to be able to contain this virus to just a few places, that it really was going to spread. And it was now going to require um, taking measures, what we call mitigation, to make sure that hospitals don't get overwhelmed, that um, vulnerable older people or people with other conditions can be protected from this. And, and that's essentially the stage that we're in now. And at this stage, is anybody you talk to kind of doing lessons learned and thinking, OK, this is this is what we have to take away from this so that we're not in this situation again? A little bit. Um, it is quite difficult in the moment, but there are a couple of different levels. Um, so one kind of very practical one that uh, ECDC director Amon mentioned is right now we're having a hard time tracking what's going on in the moment because we need all this data about like how many cases there are and how many people are dying, how many people are getting better. We need that from hospitals or from nursing homes. And the people who are actually collecting that information are the doctors and nurses who are responding, who are trying to save lives, who are totally overwhelmed. So they don't have time to go do data entry. And so we are kind of always a little bit behind in what we actually know. And so, um, I think you'll see a push for more kind of digitalization, e-health, maybe even some artificial intelligence. That's kind of a very narrow practical point. Um, The big long-term question is, you know, there's this cliche that health is not an EU competence, uh, and neither are a lot of the things involved in, in broader crisis management, even if this were a natural disaster. And crisis management commissioner Lenarchich made the point to David and Jacopo, our colleagues, that, look, if you want Brussels to do a better job of responding to these things, you need to give Brussels more power. Because what we saw repeatedly already in this crisis is health ministers or other ministers responsible for other things, they'll get together and they'll talk about how important it is for us all to coordinate. Um, But then when it comes to actually doing it, 
they don't want to do it and they just keep doing their own thing. So you'll probably see some talk about changing the treaties, which is what it would really take. And uh, it is a gigantic open question whether this will actually create the the political will to to change the treaties and have capitals give up more of their own power. Right. And that's a that's a, you know, in in the midst of this unprecedented crisis, that's one thing that's not unprecedented, this kind of permanent debate about where the balance of power should should lie and, and our government's willing to give up power. And if they do so, would that make things, you know, better or worse? Anything else that uh, stood out for you when you look back at all the reporting on this? Well, one thing that um, that I learned, and that sort of goes to this theme of decentralization and the challenges of that is I was sort of really interested in um, why didn't we know that we weren't going to have enough personal protective equipment, enough masks, which became a huge political fight when we saw um, uh, Germany and France um, kind of putting restrictions on how those could be um, shared with other countries. Um, And Italy was very angry that they didn't share. Most countries didn't know that they were going to have these problems. And the commission actually tried to get a sense of what was going on in late January. So there's a meeting in late January among, again, kind of health ministry career officials um, from around the European Union. And they were asked if they were going to have any personal protective equipment shortages if this problem got much worse. And only four countries flagged that, yes, potentially, if this gets worse, we're going to have shortages. And I asked John Ryan, the official who's in charge of that, um, of, of this that section of the commission, what was going on there. And he said, look, most countries have no idea what's in their stockpiles. A few small countries that are well organized can keep track, but then smaller countries that are not well organized can't keep track. And it's even worse in um, countries that have decentralized health, health systems. Um, likewise, one of the reasons we're all in lockdown right now is because we don't have the ability to test everybody to get a sense of who actually needs to be quarantining or not. And in mid-February, ECDC Director Ammon told health ministers that, yep, Europe has great laboratory capacity. This isn't something we need to worry about. And I said to her, well, obviously that was... That was not really accurate, um, not an accurate message to them. And she's like, yeah, you know what? We have good lab capacity, like the physical brick and mortar labs. But we didn't take into account the shortage of the testing material, like the liquids that you would need to to do these tests. And so that's another lesson is, is just sort of the quality of oversight of supplies. Um, it seems like kind of a wonky technical issue, but we have seen the day-to-day practical impact on all of our lives of just obliviousness of our supplies at the time. The other thing that that just was really interesting to me is the extent to which I can speculate on some the motivations for the attitude I'm about to describe, but it would be it would be purely speculation and but I I just wonder to what extent sort of cultural stereotypes or just sort of failure to identify with kind of a broader global situation were a factor here. I mean, I talked to one of the main public health experts in Italy who is helping advise the government on their response. And initially I was talking to him about why our hospital capacity was so overwhelmed. And I said, look, you know, 
we saw this image in early February in Wuhan. The Chinese had to build this huge 1,000-bed hospital to deal with all these extra people that needed care. Did that set off any, you know, turn on any light bulbs in people's heads in Europe? And he was just like, no, we, it just never dawned on us that that's something that we would have to do next. But then he said that when Italy started having its problem, within a week of those northern towns being shut down in late February, there was a meeting of health ministers from, from countries that border Italy. They all came to Rome. And he said that in, at least initially, his line was, they saw it as an Italy problem and not a virus problem. Uh, and just this perception that, okay, this is like a problem that other people are having. And, you know, there were a lot of articles kind of early on about how Italy didn't handle one of its early cases exactly perfectly. And again, this is purely my speculation, but maybe people were just able to dismiss it as like, oh, you know, that's just those Italians. They didn't get it right. That's not going to be our problem. Well, nobody got it right. Yeah. <laughs> Well, this kind of comes back to a guest we had on the podcast the other day, Professor David Alexander, who talked about the various biases that we all have. And, and you know, the kind of, I'm trying to remember the names. I think one of them was an invulnerability bias that we think that whatever is happening won't happen to us. And, and various other kind of built-in ideas that we have, yeah, that even if it's happening, it won't happen here. Even if it happens here, it won't happen to me. And I guess we're finding out the hard way, uh, you know, just how kind of inbuilt those biases are. Okay, I think that covers it. Thanks very much, Sarah. Sure. That was Sarah Wheaton, political senior health reporter, and I'm going to hand over to our senior mobility reporter, Josh Posaner, who's been looking into the effects of the coronavirus crisis on the auto industry and where it might go from here. Hi, I'm Joshua Posaner, and I report on mobility at Politico. The global health crisis is having an increasingly destructive effect on Europe's car industry. The Brussels-based European Automobile Manufacturers Association, the lobby group ASEA for short, is tracing the scale of the disruption. It estimates that national lockdowns have caused 1.5 million units of lost vehicle production and put more than 1.1 million jobs on hold. That raises questions over how one of the bloc's major industries, already being buffeted by revolutions in digital technology and electric cars, can steer itself through an unprecedented economic crisis. It's also leading some to ask whether the EU's green ambitions might need to be tweaked down a little bit to best help automakers bounce back once the crisis is finally through. That's because they face millions of euros of fines for not meeting CO2 reduction targets that start to phase into effect this year. That's just one major issue facing the industry, and I spoke to ASEA's Director General Eric Mark Haltamer, the car industry's chief lobbyist in Brussels, to get a handle on what the industry is asking for and how it's responding to the pandemic. Given the extent of this crisis and the fact that we don't know how long it's going to last, would you say this is an existential threat to a successful auto industry in Europe moving forward? Yeah, the, the threat is certainly there. And of course, the threat is different in every country uh, and every for every automaker. Currently, uh, when you look at what our customers or our members are doing, is focusing on the immediate threat, which is the disease. So we're helping with mouth masks that were normally used for spraying paint in factories or protective clothing. And we are currently working on uh, developing new face masks, face shields uh, with our 3D printers we have in our factories. We are even 
helping in ventilator production. It seems that windscreen wiper engines could be used very well for ventilators. So car makers are doing their bit in trying to produce uh, hardware that can be used in the fight against the spread of the virus. However, is there going to be an ask on the side of the industry from policymakers to help lessen the economic impact moving forward too? And if so, what are those requests? Yeah, that's a good question. But we, before we can answer that, we first have to survive. And that is where we are currently asking policymakers to make sure that we get the, the funds and the possibilities to, to keep the companies alive and open. Because as you know, that we are responsible for about 14 million European citizens in our sector, and we want to keep the European industry and automotive sector strong. So we now need the immediate liquidity to make sure that we are getting supported. Of course, one of the the big topics that the automakers have had to respond to in the policy world over recent years has been emissions legislation. I wonder, could trying to talk about delaying certain provisions um, for the EU CO2 emission reduction targets that phase into effect this year, could this be something that the auto lobby wants some flexibility from policymakers on? I think it would be completely the wrong moment to start discussing any regulations or legislations to change. And we don't even know if it is needed. So let's first get out of this crisis. Let's make sure that the the people in the factories can return to work without getting infected with COVID-19. That is our biggest worry right now. And when we have done that, and I think that will still take until early October, maybe November, that everything is up to production, then we will see if the demand is there, is back again. Because I uh, honestly saying, I am worried about if people have the first thing on their mind after this crisis to buy a car, maybe the first one to, uh, I don't know, have a break, go on holiday before they go and spending their money on a car. So that would be a, a disaster because then our industry cannot really come back at the same level. But uh, I think talking about and even imagining what will be happening with regulations I think it's much too early. Let's first see how everything develops. Let's first make sure that everybody survives, not only the citizens, but also the companies, the dealerships, the providers, the suppliers, the whole chain. It's very complex. I don't know if you realize that stopping a production line in a factory is just a push on the bottom. But if you want to start up the production, you have to make sure that all parts are there. Uh, We talk about tens of thousands of parts coming from all over the world uh, and hopefully the majority from Europe. Of course, despite the fears over whether or not car makers can meet the targets, there have been major investments by by automakers over recent years into trying to ramp up the capacity to produce electric cars. Now, I wonder, even without any flexibility from the European Commission, do you think that car makers are on track to meet their green targets anyway this year, uh, pandemic or no pandemic? I think the ambition is there. I was 100% clear, I think, before the crisis that the OEMs in Europe were committed to making the targets. And let's see if that can happen. This is a a crisis we have never seen before. Uh, So we are not sure if it can happen. But uh, 
we are certainly trying. Do you think that this crisis will have a long-lasting impact on how people move around cities? I mean, it is not um, hard to imagine that commuters may really prefer their own personal vehicle moving forward than cramming into a sweaty bus or subway carriage. This could equal way more sales of personal cars. What's your take on how this industry begins to change in a post-pandemic world? It is normal that people will rethink their way of mobility. And uh, that could be choosing the bicycle eh, instead of the bus. But it could also mean buying a car or renewing your car into a greener car that you currently have because you're more dependent on the car for your day-to-day commute. So I think that that will be a difference. And uh, we are hoping and we are asking policymakers to support us in that change uh, to greener vehicles. For example, uh, the intelligent and smart fleet renewal schemes that uh, we will probably need to boost demands because if the cars are not sold in the dealerships, uh, we cannot produce them. And even if we can get great loans now, if we don't sell cars, The industry, of course, will not survive. And then that would be terrible because then you will have an influx of cars from maybe the US or maybe China, which have a lot lower, let's say, ambition on green, being green than what we have in Europe. So there you have it. Right now, the auto industry is trying to figure out a way to keep parts moving across the continent and make sure supply chains hold up during the crisis. After that, it will be time to talk regulation. But any whiff of an attempt by the industry to appear to be using the crisis to soften regulation, especially that pertaining to climate targets, is immediately pounced upon by climate groups and green lawmakers. Baz Eichout, a Dutch Green MEP, has been leading the charge against an industry he says has had long enough to go clean five years on from the Dieselgate scandal. He reckons part of the industry at least is already on track for the clean dream. So, Baz, how does this lobbying effort uh, look to you? Are you worried about this? Uh, maybe an attempt from the car makers in the future to get more leeway on their uh, on their green standards? The different players in a sale of the car industry, they are divided. And uh, I think that explains a bit why ASEA is a bit more open than they usually are. And it shows that the world really has changed. That happened, of course, before we were hit by uh, this uh, virus. But of course, that changed world is not gone suddenly. And I think what you see is that some of the car industry who really made a shift in their thinking and being more future oriented, of course, now also look at, okay, if we now are going to get out of this crisis, for them, it's probably more important to give that change course a new boost instead of going back to the old conservative lobby. So Baz, given the scale of the crisis, Amy, would you concede that maybe car makers need a little bit of room, given that millions of jobs are potentially on the line here? Would you say that some kind of flexibility needs to be at least considered for climate legislation? Now immediately falling in this kind of very, very default business as usual uh, lobby argument, oh, let's, let's postpone things, I think it's just not valid. And we have to see how this will uh, go. And of course, if very clearly you can show that because of this crisis, all kind of investments have become impossible, we can have a discussion. But most of the car industry have already preparing 
all kind of new models getting online this year, that preparing is not gone. So Baz, obviously at the moment we have the short-term consideration of having to consider how to manage the health crisis. What can companies do to remain um, operating and stave off bankruptcies? What next? What comes in the medium long term for you? There will, of course, be a second wave coming. This is the first wave. This is an immediate relief, making sure that we don't have a fallout of companies. But the second wave is going to be how do we get out of the economic recession or depression even? Let's see how long this will be. And that is a longer term question. And there you will see that we will need a recovery program. That's going to be the next discussion. And this recovery program, there I think it's going to be very important that we are going to use that recovery program to also address the other crises that we still have at hand, and that's climate and biodiversity. Until the industry gets a green light to return to production and start shifting vehicles left at dealerships once again, along with making sure components and parts can shuttle around freely, there will be little certainty over how it can steer through the crisis. And the question remains whether policymakers will eventually need to bend to their concerns and ease regulations, even if environmentalists aren't pleased. Thanks to Josh Posano for that report, and that's all we have time for on this episode of EU Confidential. Before we go, as I mentioned, we have a special event coming up this Wednesday, April the 15th at noon Central European time. The podcast True is doing a Twitter chat. If you log on to Twitter at that time and use the hashtag EUConfidential, myself along with Matt Karnichnik, Annabel Dixon and Sarah, who you heard earlier in the podcast, will answer all your questions about the EU and the UK's response to the coronavirus crisis. We'll even be taping our Twitter session and might play some of it on Thursday's podcast. Until then, I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks as ever to our producer, Christina Gonzalez, and thanks to you for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.